do. Yo, what's up, everybody? This is JJ Martinez. This is Big Jeff. And this is Beauty and the Beast Mode Podcast, episode 12. 12. Yo, you know what we don't have right now? Uno dos. I, that's crazy. Did you? So, anyways, listen, everybody. I forgot the harmonica today. I know you guys are looking forward to it. <laughs> so there I was, thinking about yeah, yeah, doing an improvised harmonica. Another special episode today. Last week we had a special guest. This week we're following up with another special guest. Uh, who has a very unique journey, and we know that his story is going to touch a lot of people um, and inspire a lot of people to go out there and do the things that you want to do in life, to chase your passions, and just go all in. I agree. Uh, Our special guest is going to talk about growing up in St. Augustine, Florida, and then move on to some of his passions that he got into. Why is Ye Ye making a face at me already? I feel like I just said that. <laughs> Introduce him, brother. Our special guest for this podcast, episode 12, Beauty in the Beast Mode, is Mr. Mark Cubbage. Say hello, Mark. Ooh. Good evening. Good evening, Mark. How Good evening. I have never been better, Jason. Never been better. I, I, I would say that's pretty highly unlikely. But, you know, some people say that when they come to this podcast. Which was our only guest. <laughs> and he was coming off a surgery. <laughs> Just thank you. I've had one more day to enjoy everything life has to offer. Tomorrow I'll have one more day to enjoy it. So tomorrow will be better than ever. So that's the way you look at it. It's a, it's a new perspective every day. Already dropping nuggets. Mark, has, he's only spoke for 30 seconds. Already dropping nuggets, man. So, Mark, we want to get right into your story. Um, we have, we've got a lot to cover because from our conversations, it seems like you've done so many things and, and uh, some very fascinating things. So tell us something about yourself that um, inspired you to kind of pursue different passions. Like what, what, when did you realize that you had so many different things that you wanted to chase after? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd, sit up, I'd say I've done a lot of dumb things, too, so I'm glad we're not going to talk about those along the way. Um, I, would, I would probably start, uh, Jason, with just the writing aspect of it. And when that uh, really became a passion of mine. And uh, a lot of those who know me well um, say, you know, there's a lot of people who are who are thinkers and a lot of people who are dreamers and you know you have some who are who are doers and um our good friend of mine alan um said something to the effect of basically you're all three of those because when you get something in mind you decide on it and you go do it and you and you know that's the way i think that you should approach or attack anything uh in life that uh you're passionate about and so when writing became one of those things um i i learned early on um unknowingly at the time, but um, looking back, uh, I think the, f- the formations of those really when I was a young teen and, the, and, and what music in particular 
um, brought to me. It allowed me the power uh, of understanding uh, storytelling, um, creative writing, good writing, writing that made you think, writing that sent you. We used to have to go to libraries back then before they ever had Google and so forth. That sent you to the library looking, researching, wanting to know more. Um, so I think a, a good a good story or a story well told uh, can motivate people to do that and, and engage them more. And that's certainly what happened to me uh, early on in music. And then um, I think the the actual writing part turned in, um, you know, when I had a, uh, unknowingly to me again uh, at the time, a mentor who, you know, saw and believed in me when I, I didn't see me and I didn't believe in myself, that's for sure. And that was, so I had, um, most of my life, I, I was set on, you know, I was going to be uh, a chemist, a chemical engineer, you know, something in the applied science world. You know, I wanted to work for Dow Chemical Company. Um, and, you know, I, so I went to the University of Florida and pursued that uh, degree and uh, spent a couple of years doing quantitative analysis, and I realized I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. What, what is quantitative analysis? What does that do? <laughs> quantitative analysis is basically, so I did a lot of work with uh, farmers, for example, who would bring in a dirt sample, and they want to know what made up that dirt sample, um, what different elements and compounds were present, and in what, what volume. And um, the, the end goal was maybe they were a blueberry farmer and they wanted to grow more blueberries or yeah. better blueberries. And so we could look at the soil and the composition and, and break that down and knowing what blueberry plants liked without getting into a whole bunch of crazy things you know, and cation you know exchange capacities. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to blow your fuses <laughs> right now, but um, we can have another episode on you know cation exchange capacity if you want. But um, I, I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a lab. Um, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of outgoing uh, people, not a lot of, you know, interaction. You're really focused on um, a lot of things that were very, you know, very serious and, you know, things that if you did wrong could have very dire consequences to people. Um, so uh, I decided I wanted to do something else, and I, I didn't know what that was. And so I went back to school, and I literally took a, I took a class in accounting. I took a class in... Oh, I was probably 22, 23, maybe. And so I took a class, and like I said, it was accounting class. I took a, a JOU 2100, which was an introductory to journalism class, and a few other things that I can't remember what they were at this point. I ended up basically dropping them all uh, because they really didn't interest me, except for the journalism class. And uh, as I recall, uh, there's an adjunct professor uh, named Jane Tanner, and she. Shout out to Jane Tanner. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, to my knowledge, she just taught one one semester, and I remember she came to me early on and and said, "Hey, you know, you really have a knack for this." But she only taught one semester. Yeah, it was just one of those people that, looking back, you understand that you know they were placed in your life for a reason. Um, it wasn't a coincidence, in my opinion. And, you know, she was there to help me, you know, find, find my compass, you know, and set a direction. And, you know, she would come to me and, you know, just, hey, you really got a knack for this. You ought to do this. And 
I remember telling her, I said, look, lady, I just spent two years in a lab. I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, she, week after week, didn't give up, kept after me, kept on me. You know, you should think about writing more. You should think about, you know, all the, the assignments that I did in that class. Of course, I'm a big sports guy, so everything was written about sports. And she finally said, you got to stop writing about sports, and then you got to write about something else because you're just really good at that. So I want to challenge you to do something else. So she always had me doing something separate than what a lot of the rest of the class was doing. I was absolutely lost. Um, you know, like I said, I had I spent all my uh, years in high school, um, you know, working through the ad advanced and uh, you know calculus and physics and all the different chemistries and so forth, and preparing myself for what I knew I was going to do. And in high school, that I wished I could cheat off of, but I couldn't get in those classes. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, a lot of people who uh, knew me were surprised I was in those classes because you're the <laughs> quiet guy, metal head, long hair, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, another lesson yeah, in the yeah. thing, right? right. So, um, you know, it was, it was scary, you know, you're, you know, you're set out on your own for the you know, first time as a young person and, you know, you think you've got the world figured out and then the only thing you learn is that you don't have anything figured out and you're starting all over again. Yeah, a lot of it, of course, was, you know, what, what I, at the time, I just thought she was a real pain because, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And she kept saying, you know, you really have a talent. You really have a knack at this. And either I didn't want to hear it, I didn't want to believe it, maybe both, um, to be honest with you. And, you know, she came to me one, one class and she said, hey, you know, I think you should think about, you know, writing for a newspaper. And, uh, you know, have you ever thought about that? And, you know, same thing. Look, I don't know what I'm doing. And she goes, well, you know, you should call him and, and, and talk to him about that. I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. So another week goes by. She comes to me and she says, hey, did you call him, the newspaper? And I said, no. And she goes, I know you wouldn't, so I called him for you, and they want to hear from you. So it was at that point that I was sort of like, okay, who is this lady? And, you know, what's her background? And then I started researching her, finding out who she was, what she had done, and she was just finishing a, you know, a great book on the USS Saratoga, and she was uh, writing, uh, you know, nationally for the New York Times and, uh, you know, uh, different trade publications and magazines, and a uh, very well-accomplished writer. And so she, she said, you know, I called them, they want to talk to you. She gave me the guy's phone number and the guy's name, and, you know, some reason at that point I went down to the newspaper and met him and they remember to this day they said well, hey when Jane recommends somebody we want to see him so I went down there and here I am a you know 20 I say here I am a 20 whatever 22 23 year old kid all of a sudden you know is covering sports for a you know a pretty major paper in in Florida and you know another 
year or two later, I'm covering the National Football League. So. So she stepped in to into your path, right, and try to set you on this tra this trajectory for success with writing. Did you realize then and there that she was a mentor? Was it years later when you said, "That's the person that really helped me out here"? I think the the point I realized that was when I actually went down to the newspaper and and the sports editor at the paper had told me they said when she recommends somebody we want to talk to him i knew at that point she had a great reputation because um you know getting in uh as a person in the in the journalistic world with really no clip file no writing nothing to show um they weren't very interested in chemistry so i i wasn't going to do very much there um so having someone who could you know who came in and and really you know spoke up and was was an advocate for somebody that she believed in um, and you know, you know, when you when you look at it, she she put her reputation on the line for a young kid that she had known for a matter of weeks, and it was that point that I realized that you know I need to have a little bit more of open eyes, open ears, and open mind um, toward what's happening here. Facebook Live, if you have any questions or comments that you would like to add, feel free to just type them on in, and, uh, and we'll get them and we'll read them. Our special guest today is Mark Cubbage, so any questions that you have for Mark, please feel free to ask. So you get to this newspaper and you start writing about sports. Was there any particular sport that, that you gravitated toward? Yeah, well, I remember my very first assignment was covering like a under eleven gymnastics thing as sort of a test, and, and I'm like questioning my sin. Yeah, yeah, it was just. I mean, it's a very sort of you know uh, bland advance of this. I think it was I don't know under twelve or something, you know, girls gymnastics thing, and I'm like, yeah, I guess you don't start out at the top. And if you start at the top and worked your way down, there be no reason of yeah, exactly, exactly. But it wasn't, you know, long after that that, you know, you know, I was, you know, that was sort of a, a trial test piece. And then, you know, here I am again in first semester of J school and, you know, offered a part-time job and then uh, realized things were going well enough, fast enough that I actually ended up uh, leaving that job and starting myself freelancing. And, you know, next thing you know, I, you know, was, um, you know, the Jacksonville Jaguars were announced and um, I was covering the National Football League. 1995. So you've mentioned a couple of times J school. So for our listeners mm. who might not know, is that journalism school? That's correct, yes. And can you just kind of go into a little bit about more of what the courses were like and, and kind of what you went through going through that school and how long was it? Yeah, so uh, I had, uh, gosh, I guess it was, uh, it took me about a year and a half to graduate uh, journalism school. And the classes, again, focused a lot on uh, writing, um, writing well, an economy of words, um, you know, learning the, everything in, in news was written around the Associated Press style guide. So it was like knowing the style book, you know, by heart, um, where to go, what to look at, how to write it, how you refer to it. Um, and then, you know, classes on 
you know, uh, public speaking, you know, you're going to do a lot of interviewing, talking to people. Um, a lot of times in the, in the path in which I was led, uh, a lot of those end up being celebrities and, you know, people of, of, of pretty good renown and, you know, being a, a natural introvert, um, was again, another challenge for me, um, to go out and be talking to someone who you did not know, but you knew because the world knew it was a very famous athlete um, or celebrity or whatever. Um, so just, a, 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 I guess, a learning, um, honing those skills, um, interview skills, people skills, uh, certainly writing skills. Again, that you know, I was fortunate enough that that came um, fairly naturally to me. And again, I attribute a lot of that to, to, to music. Um, and really being, you know, a lot of times I'm hearing people say, you know, that the, the music was so powerful, the words were secondary. And for me, that wasn't the kind of music I listened to. It was, yes, I love the music, but the lyrics weren't secondary. They, you know, I, I, a lot of times when, especially when there are personal stories, autobiographical pieces that, you know, were transformed into song, um, those are the pieces that really resonated. You got to know people, their experiences, things that you may be experiencing that were similar to that, you know, you could form a bond with and really relate to. So again, it, that helped me uh, understand the power of, of the written word. So you mentioned that journalism school was a year and a half. So is, I know, let's say for a normal degree somewhere, it's two years or four years for a different degree. And uh, was a year and a half the normal for a journalism school? Or? Well, I had already, remember, I already gone through school yeah, once. I went to school for 12 years, but for like the last five of those, I just would go meet my buddies and go out and drink. I would, I had, uh, it would be a, a four-year degree typically, but I had, you know, I'd already been around the block once, so I had all your other electives and right. all this for kind sure. of stuff, whatever done. So I really, all I really had to focus on was, um, you know, the, the journalism classes. So that's why it was a, a bit shorter period. As you were going through those journal, journalism classes, uh, did you have bigger ideas about writing and where you wanted to take it? Yeah, I, th I think that, um, like I said, when I, when I was working, you know, at the, at the newspaper part-time and realized, A, you don't get paid very much money, so you got to do it because you love it. Mm -hmm. um, but B, I realized I could do a lot more than just what was being offered there. And don't get me wrong, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And not many people get that opportunity, so I don't want to dismiss that. But I also realized that there's a whole world out there. You know, there's a, there were books dedicated to, you know, books like the Writer's Market that are dedicated to freelance writers where you can actually submit ideas or, or write and, and, you know, put in submissions for publications and magazines. So I started doing that. Um, again, it, it all focused at, around the sports world for me. It may have been sports memorabilia or sports history, um, uh, things like that, that I really, you know, just went after because I just felt that there was more there. And, um, you know, it, it had been, it had all been in there all along. I mean, I was, you know, I was a, a kid, I was, you know, Literally, when I say a kid, probably, you know, 10 years old, writing letters to guys like Otto Graham, who's the great Cleveland Browns quarterback from 1946 to 1955, and, you know, league MVP in 1955, highest paid player in the league. He made $25,000 at that year. Um, but, but, yeah, exactly. But it was just, you know, it was just I was always interested in history. So the cool thing was that they would, a lot of times back then, so they would write you back. 
so I would have, you know, I've still got a collection of letters somewhere from, you know, these yeah. different great players of the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, it's, it's amazing, those, those connections, those, those dots that you start to connect when you start to look back in the past. I, I like to call them click moments when you mm -hmm. look back and you say, wow, that happened, and now I'm doing this. And then when I look back, I started doing that years and years ago, and I never thought it would get to this point. Yeah. Um, so let, to go back a little bit, you talked about writing football players when you were young. You grew up in St. Augustine, Florida. Yes, And there's that's a history right. there, right? Yes. You want to talk about that yeah. a little bit? Our, fo our football team, St. Augustine High School, Yellow Jackets. <laughs> yeah. Go Jackets. Um, yeah, we didn't really have a football team here, but uh, as far as a professional team, but we, uh, you know, definitely grew up here. I think that's what you're alluding to is, uh, you know, growing up in St. Augustine um, and having a, a family that's been here uh, literally for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, tracing our heritage back. And my um, dad's side's been Orkin, and those who know their history of St. Augustine know that, you know, those are those the ones who, you know, came and founded the city. And those listening, maybe either here or elsewhere around the world, you know, St. Augustine is, you know, America's oldest permanently occupied European settlement, as it's called, um, founded in 1565. So, my family dates back, you know, pretty close to that um, here, which is pretty amazing. And um, it's been incredible to watch it grow. Watch it grow. Uh, I remember, you know, being uh, literally you hear things now out in the middle of, you know, the heartland or whatever, where you're one stoplight towns and whatever. Well, that's what St. Augustine was growing up. We had, you know, one stoplight at King Street and US 1, and that was it. And, man, if you had to go to Jacksonville. Oh, the Regency Mall shopping trip was brutal in the car with the yeah. mom and dad and all the way there. And you're you got to be kidding me all the way to Regency oh, Mall. Road, right? It was it was uh, US one was uh, uh, two lane. I don't think I don't remember we us ever taking 95. Um, I mean, it was there. I'm sure I suspect I don't even know. I was obviously young at that, that point when you were being hot around in the car. But I just remember going through and I'm like, man, Bayard. There's like civilization out there, you know, Um but yeah, it's it's certainly changed uh, a lot in the in the years I've been here, and obviously the stories I hear from you know my parents and you know when my grandparents were alive and hearing their stories and you know what life was like when they were you know were you know growing up and living here and whatnot is um, you know really a, a pretty neat uh, piece of history to have and certainly something I'm uh, very proud of and uh, you know doing all I can to now. I'm, pass along to my children as well so that they can have that understanding and appreciation and, um, you know, keep it, keep it going. Right. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm a military brat, so we bounce around everywhere. You never say one place for a long time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, I just remember being in the corner. That's all. Wherever we were, I was in the corner. <laughs> Good behavior. <laughs> so, Jaguars, 1995, start writing for the NFL, what was that experience like? So we had a, uh, a magazine in Jacksonville uh, that was called Jacksonville Sports, and uh, it, it covered basically everything in the northeast Florida section, uh, really from sports from Gainesville to Jacksonville, South Georgia, out to being a Florida guy, I won't say the city, but basically another school out west on I-10. Um, you know, so uh, we covered uh, essentially all all of that. And again, it was you know when I when I did uh, uh, graduate with the journalism degree, 
the the publisher of the magazine again I'd, I did an internship there and then sort of it came and it went and just kind of went nothing was ever said well like I didn't show up the next day and right. you know the publisher is where are you I'm like well sir my internship was up and I'm you know and he's like no well we want to offer you a job you know working full-time covering the National Football League covering major college sports um, you know just really a, a, a dream um, so that would have I guess that would have put me at like 24 years old right. um, so you know, I spent the next several years, um, it was, you know, saying it's a huge magazine would be uh, overstated. There was a very small staff that was working uh, just like mad to make it happen. And the, the guy that owned uh, the magazine um, he actually just recently passed away a few weeks ago, uh, uh, Jack O'Neill. And he was, again, another one of those people that, you know, he, again, here you are, a 24-year-old kid who did an internship at his company. And, you know, here he is saying, hey, I want you to come in and, you know, basically you know be the editor for the magazine and you know setting up everything from the contents to stories working with a stable of freelance writers you know and the photographer for the magazine uh chris conan who's still a very dear friend of mine um actually was it overwhelming for a 24 year old um i don't i don't know that i would call it overwhelming um uh, because like i was doing what i wanted to be doing right. you know i wasn't working i was going to training camp and football games and you know the things that i'd you know had as you said it was click moments going back looking back this is what i, I grew up right. you know and in and, and the south we grew up on football and college football first and then pro football yeah. <laughs> later kind of thing but it was a very uh a natural environment for me um now did you get stressed every every month at deadline for the magazine oh, of course you did yeah, yeah. you know but um yeah it was, i don't think it was overwhelming because it was you know man it was a dream it wasn't work you're doing what you wanted to do and you get up and you're fired up to go in and you know what's the day going to hold what are you going to do what cool story you're going to get you know everybody's got a story right and it's just getting to know well enough to be able to tell it in the right way to um uh, do it justice and and hopefully i always was gra gravitated toward the stories of you know not the superstars not the celebrities that everyone knows but the person who you know, uh, may have been a late round draft pick, but had an amazing Underdogs, story. Man. Yeah, exactly. You know, those are the ones you want to root for. And, and I remember, you know, there were two, uh, young receivers, uh, at the time for the, for the Jaguars, both late round picks, um, been cut, uh, God, I think maybe in sixth, seventh round, I don't know, 12th round pick, but anyway, Keenan Cardell, um, I think it was originally drafted by the Browns and maybe the 12th round or something. I don't know. Some, some fact checker out there listening was going to call me and tell me I'm wrong, but that's fine. It's been, so, it's been a few years ago. Um, and then Jimmy Smith, who was originally drafted by the Jacks, uh, by the Dallas Cowboys and um, ended up landing in Jacksonville. But um, they both went through in, uh, incredible stories of, uh, you know, I mean, the odds were just stacked against them every turn of the way. And, you know, from playing at small schools, uh, you know, Jimmy Smith at, uh, Jackson State, and I think Keenan McCardell, if memory serves me correctly, was at UNLV, and you know, getting in, getting cut, getting cut, having uh, serious injuries, you know, all kinds of setbacks, but um, you know, never giving up, staying at it, and you know, turning out to be, you know, I, I think Jimmy Smith probably one day will be in the Hall of Fame. His numbers stack up uh, incredibly well against uh, all the other receivers of his era, and. Um, you know, they actually, you know, obviously, if, as everyone knows now, if you're a football fan or certainly a Jacksonville fan, that that particular duo is the best receiving core 
Jacksonville has ever had and was, you know, they're, you know, Pro Bowl caliber people. So it was cool to, again, tell their story early on and then eventually watch them become Pro Bowl players. And, um, you know, those, those are the kind of stories that I like to, to share because there's somebody else who's, who's, you know, who's being, you know, who's second guessing himself, who's facing challenges, who's facing whatever. And when they can see somebody who's made it even on, you know, on, a, on the national or world stage, you know, that has the ability to bring with it a glimmer of hope. How long was that experience for you with the NFL? Uh, I uh, guess it was probably through about 1998, um, at which time I actually, uh, both Chris uh, and I actually uh, left and went uh, to the PGA Tour. And that's where I spent um, the next 13 or so years uh, at the PGA Tour and I started, I was there in the late 1990s and, you know, this whole internet thing was kind of coming around and um, it was kind of neat to be there and be a part of the team that really helped launch PGAtour.com and uh, get it going and um, Chris uh, was over and, and I was on the, the writing side and the, uh, of, of golf now and you know chris was on the photography side so we're still doing all the same things that we were doing um but just at a, again at another uh, major sports organization so we kind of pride ourselves here at beauty and the beast mode uh, not to fact check anything uh but we had a facebook live viewer say mark was right mccardle was drafted in the 12th round jeez that was how about that from andrew, andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Even if that's, if that's not true and you just made me look good, I appreciate you. I, I owe you money later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. We, our, our viewers don't fact check either. <laughs> they still ran, ran stuff out of it. So you go awesome. to the PGA Tour, uh, internet, uh, starting to get big, opens up a platform for you? Does it open up a platform for you? Absolutely. You know, I, <laughs> I knew almost nothing about golf uh, when I went there. And again, you're not starting from nothing because a lot of the, the skill sets and things that I did were the same as I was doing at the National Football League and NCA and that kind of stuff. But it was, you know, it was learning a different game and it's certainly not a game or sport that I had grown up on. So there was a learning curve and I said, you know, it's like, well, if I want to do this. I, I need, yeah, you gotta I need to, I, exactly. I've got to, I've got to. Uh, do it. I've got to, you know, I need to learn how to play probably and right. understand more of that. And <laughs> that was, that was brutal. That's another story. Um, it is. Um, uh, actually a funny story. I went out. So PJ tour headquarters at TBC Sawgrass. And so my coworkers finally decided to talk me into go out and just go to the range and hit. So I'm going to the range and all right, I'll give this a whack. And, and uh, I was, I, 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 I'm pretty sure I could have been arrested for, you know, defamation of the golf course. With, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I'm trying to connect golf club to golf ball, and it's not working out very well. And so I'm, and I'm, I'm left-handed, by the way. So, like, so I'm looking in. Right yeah, yeah, ball. you're right. Thankfully, they didn't, uh, they didn't judge me on that. Never did. But anyway, I'm standing there, and a minute later, I hear somebody just killing the ball behind me. I mean, you can just, that sound, you know, and I'm like, man, somebody's crushing this thing. And here I am, like, not crushing this thing. So I decided to turn around and look over my shoulder, see who that was. And it was uh, a guy named Vijay Singh. 
And it was at that point that I just picked up my golf clubs and went back to, the, <laughs> to my desk. <laughs> like, I don't need any more of that humiliation. You're like, I'll just write Yeah, this. exactly. But, you know, I, I, I threw myself into it just like I did, you know, again, growing up watching football and knowing the history and writing the people and all that. So I wanted to read everything I could read. Um, I wanted to talk to everyone that I could talk to who had been covering the game for so long. There's so many great, great golf writers that I uh, had the privilege of uh, either working with, um, calling friends, um, working on projects with, and you know, just to pick their brain and, and not, you know, not miss an opportunity to shut up and listen. What did what did putting a story together entail? For whether it be the NFL or PGA, when you wrote something. How how much time and effort went into actually developing a piece? It depended. So for a magazine, is very different than it is for uh, you know newspaper writing or or uh, internet writing, you know news coverage, if you will. So magazine writing is more you know feature writing. So that could you know you could be working on several pieces for the next couple of issues uh, at the same time. You know trying to set up interviews and in depth long interviews. So like you know like for the Jimmy Smith and Keenan McCardell piece I was speaking about. You know, I needed an hour or so of each of their time just sitting down one-on-one and really understanding what they went through. Um, but when you're covering, like, a golf tournament, you know, you're, you know, it's time, it's time, it's time, it's time, you know. Get get the news out, get the scores out, what they did, how they did it. Um, so, so it was a very, you know, for the, you know, writing for Internet, PJTour.com or newspapers, it was very much a, you know, a quick turnaround, get – get the facts out there kind of thing. Um, now, obviously, there are still features that would run in newspapers or wherever and that you would work on. So that that style was basically the same. But by and large, it was, you know, watching what was going on, you know, picking up the trends, watching the scoreboards, and then getting out and, and catching up with the guys as they were coming off the course, you know, to, to do the interviews and talk to them and record it, transcribe it, get back to your desk, write it, yeah. publish it. So did you travel... I said Peter Parker style. <laughs> <laughs> Did you travel with the PGA Tour to all the different places and courses that they went to? Uh, yeah, well, not I'd say to say all of them would be an overstatement, but yeah, to a number of places um, uh, we've traveled to, um, covering the events from you know on uh, there, there. Of course, you know golf is a year, you know is basically year long, and you had the time that there were three tours. I think, I think it's called the Web.com Tour nowadays, but then it was a Nike Tour and. You had this, the senior tour, which is now the champions tour, and then the PGA tour. So there was basically three events going on any given week, essentially. So and anywhere around the world, and then obviously some in Europe. So yeah, I went um, uh, later on. Um, I, I, I transitioned from the PGA tour, doing a lot of the riding, to I became such a, a, a student of the game and a historical um, a historian of the game. I ended up moving over to uh, the World Golf Hall of Fame, where uh, I did. Uh, I basically uh, managed their collections. You know, you know, I don't even know how many millions and millions of dollars worth of you know priceless golf artifacts. Um, I would travel uh, to country to the different Hall of Famers' houses and go through their closets and you know drawers or whatever else, getting all their memorabilia to put together exhibitions with. Um, 
either at the Hall of Fame or different uh, places. We did exhibitions in uh, in Europe, at the, you know, uh, in conjunction with the uh, the RNA, the Royal and Ancient Golf Club, is Andrews, who runs the Open Championship, or as a lot of Americans call it, the Open or the British Open um, golf tournament. So um, I had, yeah, I've traveled, whether it's for exhibitions or gathering artifacts through a number of places in Europe, Spain, Ireland, England, Scotland. Scotland. A couple of things. I heard like Scotland and Ireland, the courses are just magnificent. Unbelievable. Um, very different style of game uh, than we play uh, in America. Very different style of course. But man, the countryside, um, you know, I had a chance to go over and uh, play at St. Andrews. And as everyone knows, that's the, the home of golf. And um, it's just, it's really just magical. Um, and the landscape and the beauty and, and the people and, you know, they really, really have an, a, a deep appreciation and respect for, uh, for the game and its history. And, uh, you know, I love that, the history of the game. And I think, you know, history always gives you uh, chances to learn, you know. So go back, because I have a few questions for you. Sure. Yeah. Every night. Uh, thankfully, I was invited in, and um, there's actually I, I, I don't know somewhere if you probably Google it out there. There's actually Sports Illustrated did a piece. They traveled with me to uh, Lanny Watkins' house uh, out in Texas, um, and basically wrote a story documenting what it was like to go through and pick it all, pick all the you know, for lack of a more scientific term, all the stuff out and bring it back and to build an exhibition uh, out of what you have. So, um, was yeah. The weirdest, was the weirdest artifact or whatever that you had that you collected and you were like, hmm. they might have looked at you like, really, Mark? What's this? Just like these DVDs, man. You DVDs. I, uh... <laughs> I may I may paint the fifth on some of those. My my uh, <laughs> maybe then the next book I write will be the things that I could never write about, and I'll do that under a ghost name. Um, I will tell you one of the funniest things that uh, there was a um, there was a golfer. It was hysterical. There was out there just basically checking out his memorabilia and, and stuff. But uh, there was a guy there was a guy named Doug Sanders who. Uh, he was known in the 70s as the peacock of the fairways because of the way he dressed. It was very, very... Flamboyant. Yes, okay. to say the least. Exaggerated. And, uh, you know, a very good player. Um, he won, I think, 20, 20 PGA Tour events um, and lost to Jack Nicklaus in, I think, the 1976 Open Championship. And Jack sunk a putt, and there's a very famous image of Jack, you know, celebrating, throwing the putt up in the air, and Doug Sanders is like grabbing his head, covering it, you know, for Jack, you know, sort of lost in the moment. But anyway, I was at Doug's house and going through things, and he was, you know, dressed in his whatever turquoise shirt and his turquoise pants and his turquoise socks and his turquoise shoes and his turquoise jacket with his turquoise tie, and his, you know. Anyway, I remember going to his house, and he says, "I want to show you something before you get started," and we go in his like his bedroom, which was kind of weird. Oh. But, but it's like a long, like the longest hallway you've ever seen in your life, right? Like a, a hallway that you would walk to 
when you're in school going from, you know, down hallways. Yeah, you know, yeah, you can write to that, Jason, that's just you. But it was basically mirrored doors all the way down. And he just like puts a finger on each door hole on the side and just starts opening them. And it was like shirts on the top row, every single shade of red. And then the row under it was every, you know, pants that matched every shirt up there. And over here was the socks on the side that matched the shirt that matched the pants and then the shoes and the, and it was just literally there was Crayola had nothing on this guy. He had more colors in that yeah. place than I you mean, could. It could be like some of your OCD too, you know? Yeah, maybe I guess if you picked out three here, you got three there and you got three there. And anyway, you got down to the end. He's like, and just in case you wondered, I'll match all the way down. And I'm like, I didn't need to see that part. So that's the weird stuff. <laughs> Um, no, I didn't, uh, you know, you'd, I think, you know, growing up, you, everyone, whether you like golf or not, you've heard of Jack Nicholas or Arnold Palmer and you knew, yeah, the drink, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, he's also a golfer who the drink was made after, right? <laughs> I was reminded of my age when I had, I was very, I had one of those very proud moments that was quickly drawn into perspective when I had the privilege to, uh, work on a book with Sports Illustrated. And I was showing my niece, and uh, yes, you do indeed. Uh, man, this is a beast. This is a beast of a book, brother. Yes, it's a it's a big book there. Um, anyway, I was uh, I had the uh, privilege of being a historical consultant on a lot of the artifacts uh, in there through you know the several hundred years of artifacts that uh, are in existence. And um, anyway, I was going through and showing this the new book that. Uncle Mark had, you know, had a part in and showing it to my young niece, and she was really not interested until I got to, and said, no, there's Arnold Palmer, and she, her eyes got wide, and she goes, you know, there's a drink called an Arnold Palmer, <laughs> and I'm like, I've lost officially, and I said, well, this is why there's a drink called Arnold Palmer, it's right. because of this man named Arnold Palmer. Uh, so, um, in that, in the Sports Illustrated book, which is brilliantly entitled The Golf Book, um, there's a lot of uh, the historical pieces, basically saw that a lot of the different artifacts uh, in there that are, you know, basically museum type artifacts. Um, so the, uh, Kevin Cook, uh, who is a, uh, just a brilliant writer um, for Sports Illustrated, um, great golf knowledge too. Um, he had asked me to uh, work with him on, um, you know, putting a lot of the historical pieces into context. So whether it's the evolution of the golf ball from, the featheries to the gutties to, you know, what we know today. Um, so it's a lot of the historical pieces. So we looked through there, anything that's basically uh, an artifact that's in that book um, are pieces where I was able to add some value to uh, an amazing publication. So it's very, very humbling. So we have our first Facebook Live question da -da -da -da. Dun, da -da. from Heather. You mentioned your story about DJ Singh on the golf course and you packed up your clothes and yes home. she wants to know if you are a better golfer now than you were then yeah I could not have been worse so uh, I, I used to actually play a lot um, I would never say I was great I think the 
best round I ever shot on. So our one of the privileges of working the tour was, you know, you got a membership at TPC Sawgrass. So we got, you know, played the course a couple times a week. Um, wow. You know, single, no kids, and you know, get off work and you go walk down holes or you go play eighteen or whatever. Um, and I think uh, the best score I shot out there was an eighty-four. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not going to win you any money, though. <laughs> yeah, that, oh, thanks, Jason, for the clarification. Um, that, that was all 18. Um, appreciate that, though. Uh, but then, you know, as as you go on, and you know, there's a saying having the golf business: the, the best way to clear your golf game is to get into the golf business. And it's really it's really true because you end up doing so much more and um, don't really have the time to play. But you know, then you're starting a family, and you know, you've got a decision to make. Um, as now. You know, as I became a father, I can either go spend, you know, you, you're working during the week, you got the weekend, basically is your free time, so I can either go spend what amounted to a, you know, the greater part of a day, you know, you get up early, you get out, you go practice, you, you know, you get to the golf course, you practice, you hit balls, you play around, and, you know, it's going to be depending on how busy it is and how good people are ahead of you. It could be four or five hours out on the golf course, you get done, you know, you grab a bite to eat something like that with you know and get back home and you've, you've basically taken a good chunk of your day so um for me it was a, it was an easy decision to play less golf and spend more time you know being a dad so um i started playing a lot less and in fact i've probably played twice in the last three years so um heather i you you could probably beat me like a drum if you went out took me to the golf course right now <laughs> so we talked about the sports illustrated the golf book we have a few other books here that we want to mention as well. One here has your name on it, and it says it's the Ultimate PGA Tour Book of Trivia. Yes. So. This is a book that you wrote? That is a book that I wrote. That's okay. the first book that I wrote. First book that you ever wrote. Yeah, tell me what year that was, because I don't remember. It probably had to be, uh, I don't know, gosh, a while back. Let's see. So right now we're looking at Mark's first book, which is a book about golf. And Jeff is looking at the year. Uh, but remember, guys, Jeff. 2000, you know, like 2005. Is that 2005? <laughs> 2005. So it's a, good, it's a good, about a decade or so ago. So, yeah. <laughs> Probably half the stuff in there is outdated now. But anyway, the, what, the, what I want to do, though, is ask you one of these questions okay. to see if you know it. <laughs> okay. You put it together. Jo okay. Jody is on Facebook Live is, I think, digging at your age a little bit and said it was probably 1985. <laughs> that could be. Here we go. Jason Martinez. What self-taught player? <laughs> um, survey says... Jonathan K. How about that? Jonathan K. K-Y-E. He was a young guy. Yeah. Years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is amazing. How how did you get to this point where you actually wrote this book? It was <laughs> so in throwing yourself yeah, at something. Is, what, let, let's not do, like this is a phenomenal accomplishment. You wrote, this is your first book. That's the first. Book. Yeah. No, it was great. Um, it, <laughs> the the truth of the matter is, uh, again, I can point to someone who believed in me, and then. Secondly, I can sort of shake my tongue at some people and say, see, this is proof that having a bunch of useless information bumping around your head can really turn into something good. <laughs> so as I, as I stood in 
the world of golf. And like I said, I, I wanted to know all there was to know. Um, so I, and I read everything. I talked to everybody I could, um, just to gather the knowledge. If you're going to write and write well, you've got to, particularly in golf, which is, uh, you know, has a, uh, a very, very, very long history. Um, and there are some, uh, you know, very, very educated people out there who, who read golf and are, um, you know, really the people who are going to be reading your stuff and critiquing it the most. How long was this process? Was this like an overnight thing? You said, okay, I, I want to write a book. No, so actually, like no, actually, that, that was this. So that first book, well, it was 2005, Jeff said. So I had um, acquired all this as it literally had been called useless information um, because I would just come out with some kind of like the Keenum at Cardell 12th round pick from UNLV, just something stick with you, you know. Yeah. A lot of these golf things did, and uh, someone actually had seen where uh, the, the publishing company, Tahabi Books, was going to be bringing out. Uh, I don't know, four or five golf titles. And they sent me an email and said, I saw this and you'd be perfect. Why don't you write, why don't you write this? And I'm like, so they yeah, right. The they said, yeah, they sent me, they sent me, yeah, they said, hey, they're going to be working on these. They sent me the title, this particular one, and said, there's nobody to be better to write this book than you. And I'm like, that's interesting, but maybe. So I... Again, someone who said who believed in you, or in this case, me—not you, Jason, or Jeff—but and said, "Hey, you, you should do this." And hopefully, I applied some of the law, some of the some of the knowledge and understanding that I uh, got in J school from Jane, and she was like, "Hey, you should do this." And said, "Hey, you know what? This time, I'm not going to wait for somebody else to call and make it happen. Let me let me reach out and find out." And so I did. Before that moment, had you considered writing a book? No, I had not. I had not. So, um, someone again, you know, saw something, um, connected the dots, essentially said, Hey, this would be great for you. Um, you do an amazing job. And then I reached out. We had a number of conversations and, you know, godly next thing I knew I was writing a book and that was in the, that was in the good bulb days when publishing books and getting advance checks from the book companies to write this thing. And I was like, how did this happen? Do you remember, like, how many copies? Like, what was your feeling once you saw this book got handed to you and said, this is your first book? Um, yeah, so it actually came, uh, I do, I actually have the first copy, and it came, there were uh, several people who worked on the book um, from the, uh, edit as an editor or as a designer or as a fact checker, and uh, they sent me the first copy of the book, and you know, a letter from, from the publishing company, um, saying some very nice things. And they all had signed the letter, um, you know, just saying, you know, we've worked with a lot of authors over the years and, you know, uh, it was just amazing for, uh, experience for us to work with someone who was just, you know, so open to things. So, you know, knew so much, but still so humble. And, um, you know, we just wish we could work with, you know, every author we worked with like you, we, you know, we put out a lot more books and, um, Again, another little life lesson there is, you know, be nice to everyone, even when you don't have to, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, just it sure is a lot easier, you know, and it makes everybody else's life a lot better, too. So, um, you know, just being a pleasure to work with. And um, that's what I got from that letter. I still have that. I know exactly where it's at in my house, right, with the first copy of the book. So, so once 
It sold out, by the way. The whole first edition sold out. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we, you can probably buy them on eBay now. If, probably unsigned for a buck. Probably autographed for half that. <laughs> <laughs> once, once this happened, afterwards, after kind of the kind of that, that rush kind of settled down, was there like this feeling that I want to do this again? At first, no, because I had to go do book signings, and for someone who doesn't like to really. Yeah. It was petrifying to me. Um, someone who doesn't like to be out uh, in the spotlight. Um, I did not really. I remember I, I was. I got to the place a half hour early before the book signing was supposed to start. I'm on the way. I'm going to arrive half hour before it starts, and I get a phone call. They're like, "When are you going to be here? People are lined up." And I'm like, "Oh no, this is like my worst nightmare." You know, you're palms start sweating and everything else so anyway you got there and there's people and you know they're just you know wanted to talk to you and share a story and you know it was great because again you got you got to meet people and nope and learn stories and how they got into golf and they got to share the story about their mom or their dad or whoever it was and inspired them to play golf and why it is and that you know i want to sign a copy to my dad or my mom or my whoever and it was you know it just again it allowed them to share their story, a piece of their history, a piece of their legacy, and and bring back something to them. So, while well, I, I went into it initially petrified because like I did not want to be out there and everyone taking pictures and all this kind of stuff, and it ended up being something that was uh, actually very rewarding because you know you got to learn more about people and you know you know make their day um, in a sense because someone you know, of, and I use this term very loosely, but someone of fame, just because you're an author, I guess, but, you know, took the time to listen to them and sign the book and do whatever, um, you know, just, you know, made their day. So ended up being a really cool experience. So how did it work? Where did you, was it traveling throughout the whole country? Was it certain areas? No, at the time it was, it was, um, locally, um, in our area here in Northeast Florida. Um, and then, actually, I think one in Orlando, too, if I remember right. So, um, God, it's, it was very different for me. So, Just because you weren't used to. Yeah, I, I, I was not used to um, being, not only not used to, but just not comfortable being the center of attention. Yeah, it's just not, um, just not my makeup. Okay. So, the book eventually... Like the cell dies down, like it was out in 2005. When do you, do you write another book? And what inspired you to write another book? Uh, yeah, so the, the next several books I did um, was more on a sort of a co-authoring fashion because uh, I didn't have a name. And the guys who wanted me to write uh, either ghostwrite or co-author things for them had names um you know a lot of hopefully people listening under have heard of like so it's writing it's it's you writing but it's uh, somebody else's names on the by yeah exactly so they have people you do yeah yeah um so the chicken soup for the soul series is something that probably everyone's heard of and um one of the uh, writers on that was also very big into golf. Um, his name's Matt Adams, and he's a you know New York Times bestseller with some of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He had he reached out to me and asked me to contribute. Um, actually, I, before I got here, I was thumbing through because I'm like I don't even remember what 
I wrote for that particular <laughs> piece. And looking back, it was amazing because um, the book was called Fairways of Life, and it was a lot of uh, sort of inspirational uh, stories from the world of golf. And uh, it, I had written a story uh, on the creation of the TPC at Mosul, um, the first golf course in Iraq, which was created by um, some American soldiers over there. Uh, and, and at the time, he was a first lieutenant, Jesse White, and uh, he basically put together a makeshift golf course to help relieve some of the stress and pressure from the guys and, um, you know, built what's believed to be the first golf course in Iraq. And he, it was, I mean, it was very crude. You've seen the pictures. It was, you know, as you can imagine, under, you know, uh, less than ideal conditions, certainly not great greens, um, plenty of sand traps, but you know, the course was lined by, you know, um, you know, the, the out of bounds lines were, you know, razor wire and blown up components from, you know, planes or vehicles or whatever. And it's like the ultimate putt, putt <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, I was, so I was thumbing through that. It was kind of, kind of funny to relive that and look back, you know, and that was, probably the same time, 2004, 2005, when I had um, done that piece. And then Matt did another book, I don't know, again, some uh, sometime later, and again asked me to uh, both co-author and then ghostwrite some pieces um, for a book called In the Spirit of the Game, which was, again, very similar uh, vein um, as a chicken soup, so very inspirational stuff. So I was able to really tap into uh, a lot of the players whom I got to know uh, well, from my years in golf and, you know, write their, uh, write their stories, uh, which was pretty amazing. Um, so if I remember correctly and Fandrew's out there and wants to fact check me somewhere, he can, but I think the pieces, uh, I wrote in there were on Gary Player, uh, Billy Casper and, uh, the Tom Morris, uh, the Morris family. So young Tom, old Tom and how, whatnot. How did you so. channel that? Why was that? Why, how did you end up writing those particular pieces? And because you talk about them being inspirational, like where did that come from for you? Those thoughts, those ideas that you, that you wrote about. Uh, it, again, it goes back to engulfing uh, yourself uh, in, in the game. And, um, you know, I had the privilege to, uh, obviously not in the case of the Morrises because they passed away you know, a century or so before I was born, but um, I read a lot of stuff about them and a lot of research, um, and what they did um, was, you know, it, it shaped golf um, as we know it today from whether it was designing golf courses um, or in, incredible players inventing new, you know, new clubs, new styles. Um, so a lot of that came through, you know, research and records and archives and just a lot of time spent on that. But I actually had a, uh, had the opportunity to uh, know Gary Player uh, really well and um, Billy Casper and knew their stories and had talked and had spoken to them, you know, many times just, you know, whether it was we were at an event or dinner or house and exhibition, whatever, wherever it was, and got to know enough about him um, to where... I knew what they had been through growing up, um, particularly Gary, uh, who grew up in South Africa, um, you know, during apartheid and had an amazing perspective on, uh, you know, the human element 
uh, of life, which uh, was so important for me to tell and what he went through and, um, and how he brought that experience um, as he traveled the world playing golf and particularly to, uh, you know, America. We, we didn't have uh, our first uh, African-American golfer uh, earn their PGA Tour card until 1964, I think it was. It was when, so golf's version of Jackie Robinson was a guy named Charlie Sifford. And uh, I got, uh, I got the to know Charlie incredibly well. He was like another grandfather to uh, my kids. Uh, he's known, you know, unfortunately he passed away uh, last year, but not before he got the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was uh, really right, cool right. to see him uh, receive that. But he was known at our house as Grandpa Charlie. And, you know, when my first daughter was born, he came down and he was he was sponsored by Titleist at the time, and you know he flew down to meet his new granddaughter, and you know brought her first little pink set of you know baby Titleist golf shoes. So, um, but anyway, the the point I guess I was trying to make was that you know Gary had this great perspective on people, and you know he would play, and at that time uh, terrible things were happening to uh, Charlie on the golf course simply because of the color of his skin, and. Um, Gary was there to, you know, to defend him. Uh, uh, it was uh, some by players, uh, a lot by fans, um, uh, throwing things at them, um, literally le leaving things like human feces in the golf cup before Charlie would go play the hole. Um, just some of the most disgusting things you could uh, ever imagine. And so there is a... a people got you know really mad at, at at Gary and some of it was misunderstanding uh, some of it was ignorance and um you know it was again a man who uh, achieved all you could expect to achieve in golf winning the grand slam and um you know s still standing up for what was right and i think that was uh, again a story that needed to be told you know he grew up in a very humble you know little town and you know had to walk to you know, miles to school and all the, you know, you hear this, everyone say, oh, I walked barefoot both ways, but like Gary really did. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, so he overcame a lot of that and, and, but never, With never lost, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> never lost the, the appreciation for, for the human being in all of us. So when, obviously you were close with him when he was close with your family. Absolutely. So Yeah, I I uh, I love to pick his brain again. I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a certainly a sports history nut when it came to it, and you know knowing that uh, you know Charlie was a part of our family, uh, we could have a lot of frank uh, conversations about things. And I remember asking him, you know, when he decided, you know, there there are some other uh, African Americans who who um, played golf, um, you know, in a tournament or whatever, but no one who actually earned their card. Um, guys like uh, Pete Brown and Bill Spiller, uh, Teddy Rhodes um, uh, played on what was called the the, the uh, UGA Tour, the United Golfers Association Tour, and it was just basically the African American golfers put their own tour together and went around and played. Um, so there were others, but Charlie was the first one that said, "I'm going to go do it full time." Was that sponsored by the PJ 
No. No. Yeah, it was. It was just yeah, just U, the UGA and they had some you know some sponsors. They got together that were supportive of uh, African American athletics, and um, they basically put it together on their own, uh, more or less. Um, so they didn't play for the same prize money. And just a clarification too, uh, that that was the PGA. So the PGA Tour didn't exist yet. There was the PGA of America, um, and when the players split from the PGA of America, and I think it was 1968. <laughs> Um, led by Jack and Arnie, they formed the PGA Tour. So the PGA Tour became all the players, and the PGA of America was their teaching and pros and that kind of stuff. So um, they had what was called the Caucasians Only Clause, um, which prevented Charlie from from playing. But uh, I remember asking him, you know, when when you decided you wanted to go do this and pursue it and you know make it happen, what did you do? And he said, you know, well, one of the things I did was I, you know, called Jackie Robinson, and I said. Well, you know, what's it like? You know, and he said, I remember, I'll never forget this. He, he said, the first question Jackie asked me was, are you a quitter? And he said, because if you are, don't waste your time. Because it's going to be a hell of a fight. And uh, Charlie wasn't a quitter, I can tell you that. And uh, he fought. Um, a lot of legal battles, um, a lot of rules got changed to prevent him from doing things, you know. Um, you know, you, you win a tour, tour event and you would get an invitation to the Masters Tournament, for example. Well, Charlie won an event. Well, then they changed the rules so that that wasn't the case and then he couldn't play in the Masters. So, um, you know, it just, it, it uh, and I, I don't think, uh, I know we're getting way down a rabbit hole in golf here, sorry, but... Uh, you know, I don't think I don't I don't think I don't think the uh, first African American played in the Masters tournament until 1975, so you know it wasn't that long ago. And of course, Charlie didn't earn his card until, you know, like I said, you know, like 1964. So he he didn't get to compete against all the greats until he was in his 40s. So he was, you know, certainly by an athlete's perspective, past his prime. Um, but still won several events, um, which was, you know, a, a pretty, pretty good testament to the caliber of player that he was. And again, who knows, you know, what. Did, did he play? We got to fix this setup, by the way. We, uh, did he play in the, what was it, the seniors? Uh, Charlie, yeah, he went on, yep, played in the uh, senior tour um, uh, as well. He he actually did that up just to, uh, up until uh, a couple of years before he passed away. Actually, he called me. So they had there's a tournament called the Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf, and it's different divisions. So it's the regular senior tour players, and then it gives everyone a chance who never got to see the greats of bygone eras play also come out and play in like team events. So um, Charlie would always go out and play in that event, um, and it was played up in Savannah. So. You know, any time he was going to play, I remember he called when he called. He called and said, "You know, I'm I'm feeling good enough now to, you know, I'm gonna go play. I think I'm gonna play my last Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf in my last tournament. I'd love if you came up and you know saw me play. So, absolutely, you know, we'll be there. So went up and watched him play, and uh, you know, again, he was well up in his years. Um, didn't hit the ball like he did in his in his in his prime, but you know, it's still like. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you could still, you know, you know, who, you know, you could, who wouldn't be able to say, you know, I got to, I got to see Sam Snead play, you know, make the all-time winningest golfer. And, you know, yeah, he wasn't in his prime, but, 
you know, you, you still got a chance to see Sam Snead play in events like that. So, um, again, for, for the student of the game or historian of the game, it was, you know, such an amazing event and gave you the, you know, the chance to see and a laid back environment interact with a lot of these, uh, you know, great golfers from bygone eras. Um, yeah, he, you know, initially there was a lot of anger and I think that's, uh, understandable. Prior or when they allowed him to um, prior, um, and, you know, I, th I think, you know, for what he had to go through and, and, you know, I won't even repeat the things that he had to hear. Um, I think he, you know, he, there was some resentment for a number of years, uh, after that, but he, um, eventually rose above it. I think he, he achieved something that no one else had been able to do. Um, and it, again, it, it certainly changed the landscape of golf. Um, and I would suspect, you know, had an impact on a lot of other sports and it, it had, I mean, you know, I like to use that ripple effect. We'll never, you know, here's Charlie sort of jumping in a pond and then the ripples go out in every direction and then it bounces off shores where you don't know where that, you know, where it is, who it's touching, who it's changing. But, um, there's no doubt that it, you know, it changed the, um, the shape of golf. It was after. Um, I I can tell you exactly when I got into photography, um, not knowing it would become a professional thing, but when I got, again, like anything else, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And I decided, you know, gosh, I've become a father, and I want to make sure I have great pictures of, at the time I had one daughter, I have two now, but I'm like, I want to make sure I have great pictures of my kid. And I need to be a really good photographer to do that. So... That's when it started. Um, so, uh, you know, she's eight and a half years old. So shortly before she was born, that's when I went out and, again, started reading everything, talking to people who I knew were photographers, recommending books. Um, I had a little bit of a benefit because I think some of the science background, like a, a, a great image um, is really, if you think about it, it's just a combination of light and shadow. And so understanding um, in, in the physics world of how light works um, was a benefit for me uh, in photography. Um, so I was able to, you know, draw back on some of that knowledge from a different world and apply that. But, um, and again, I've just put my nose in a lot of books, read, um, looked at pictures, um, would email people, write on blogs. How did you do this? Do you mind sharing with me what your, you know, aperture was, what was your f-top, what was your, you know, ISO, what was your, and having some great people uh, around me from my career in sports who were incredible photographers, um, being able to tap them for some expertise and learning and them being willing to share and not feeling like, well, I have to protect, you know, they're, they're comfortable enough in who they were and what they were doing. They was okay to share the information and not just, you know, feel like, well, I've got the information, therefore I've got the power. You hear, that? Um, you hear that, people? Share the knowledge, baby. Yeah. There's enough out there for everybody. 
more than enough. And, uh, you know, so I was fortunate enough to be able to have uh, some people who would do that. And, you know, I started taking pictures of my kids and um, eventually other things, landscapes, and just, just again, to learn different settings, different lighting, and then you Facebook's around and you post things and people start seeing pictures and then the next thing, all of a sudden, the next thing you know, people are calling, they want to hire you to take pictures and then they want you to do stuff for magazines and books and then, I don't know, all of a sudden it happened again, there I was. <laughs> what was your first big, like, photography gig? Like, people shoot weddings and, and, and baby photo shoots and stuff like that, but then there's like... There's concerts and there's like there's bigger stages for photography. Mm -hmm. well, and we've seen some of your work. What was kind of one of your first big like? Oh wow! And he I still had me on the show after you saw it. <laughs> thank you. Um, I mean, it started. It started. It started small, as you said. You, you know, you people want. I want to do portraits, pictures, families, kids, dogs, pets, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Yeah, all these, you know, yeah, comedians, <laughs> all this stuff. Um, and. I'd say that is there, is there, there a, are, a, a regression. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> only occasionally. The uh, I guess probably the the first I don't know uh, trying to quantify big in your terms. Um, well, what about two I two guess. Two? Like, uh, is there, what was? I'll go back. So probably music. Oh, I shot. Um, I shot Bad Company uh, as the first concert that I ever shot. Where was the concert? Uh, the concert was uh, at the St. Augustine Amphitheater, I think in 2010. Bad Company. Bad, bad Company. Classic rock band. Man. There might be people that don't know who Bad Company is. You know what I mean? Like, some of us come from different worlds, Jeff. True. Bad Company. Give us a song. Give us a Bad Company song. Jeff. Let Jeff, let, I want to hear Jeff sing. Bad company till the day I die. Yeah, baby. That's right. I told you we would get you to sing on here. At Six gone sound. Bad, yeah. Bad company okay, till the day I die. Right. We, Gotta we love it. A moment here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so you're so, encouraging me, and now you're telling me to shut up. Well, we want to hear Mark. We do. <laughs> we do. Uh, so, you know, getting the, the chance to, uh, again, shoot. Um, you know, music's been such an important part uh, of my life for a lot of the reasons we've already discussed. Um, but then to get a chance to have it from another perspective um, and capturing, you know, what you hope to capture is that, you know, iconic image of a celebrity, right? And that was my first opportunity to do that. And actually, it, it sounds, this would probably sound really, I don't know, you might think it's stupid, but I. I, I, one shot in particular of, of Paul Rogers, who was the lead singer of Bad Company, which Jeff just sang for you. Uh, great shot of him, in my opinion, you know, at the piano, black and white, backlit, light coming in, really cool. It's been my screensaver on my computer since I took it, I think. So <laughs> that's been a few years ago. Um, but yeah, so getting the chance to do that and then getting a chance to, you know, um, you know, shoot for the band, get a chance to meet them and talk. And again, songwriting and... Um, you know, good songwriting, songwriting that has uh, personal meaning uh, is, you know, again, it's a, you know, they're, they're musicians a lot of times, or at least the songwriters uh, in the band are, are storytellers too. How did you get to that opportunity? So for the photographers out there that are starting out with, 
headshots of comedians and uh-huh. <laughs> the same photo shoots and the weddings. Like, how did you get to that point? Um, so, uh, I took a chance and I started asking, hey, can I shoot this? Hey, can I shoot that? Can I shoot this? So I want to shoot that. Up, like the, I well, I, uh, uh, thankfully, you can basically get anybody's information you want if you creepy enough. So um, at the time, there was a different general manager than there is now. Um, they have, a, by the way, incredible staff there now. Um, treats, I mean, not just the media, but, you know, the fans. Just a classy, classy, classy A, A1 experience there. Um, but at the time, I'd... You know, it's, a, it's run by the county, so it's a government organization, so all the information is publicly available. So I just started reaching out, you know, tried several times, tried several times, never heard anything, never heard anything. And, you know, I guess if you're, you know, a pester enough or whatever, or if someone else, you know, um, helps you out, makes a connection, speaks up, makes a reference, hey, you know, the guy's, you know, legit, you know, give him a shot. And um, that's kind of how that unfolded. But, you know, again, um, it, it's that progression that we talked about from, you know, going, starting in J school, you know, not believing in yourself, certainly never asking or, you know, thinking that you would have the confidence enough to do it, to having someone who's there to be a mentor for you, to encourage you, to give you those first few steps, you know, and then next thing you know, you're, you know, sort of heading downhill and you're reaching out, you know, doing your own stuff, freelance writing, reaching out, you know, proactively um, looking for business and, um, you know, trying to get your, your name and your work out there so that you get more work. Oh. We have Andrew asking ask you about your love for Coca-Cola. Uh, Danielle asks about your love of heavy metal and long hair. And Felix oh. asks if you prefer Gatorade or Powerade. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of insights. I, I, I'm, I'm not certain. Of, uh, I think I probably know Andrew and Danielle. Felix, I'm not certain. So uh, I'll answer Felix first because that'll be the most interesting question. <laughs> Because obviously having uh, gone to the University of Florida and being the home of Gatorade, uh, that is not a Coca-Cola product. (laughs) They make Powerade. So when I have the opportunity to drink a sports drink, I think they're called, I choose my stock options in (laughs) Coca-Cola and go with Powerade. That looks like a little promo right there. Yeah, it was, right? Whoever has listened to the podcast in the past, Felix is laughing over here, uh, knows how I use at, at, for years now and still um, music as therapy, almost. That there's a song for any type of mood that you're in, and music has gotten me through a lot of stuff. And I know that you have roots um, to music, uh, in particular progressive rock or progressive metal bands. Right. Uh, I know that a favorite is Fate's Warning. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I know that you have a specific tie to them with photography and stuff like that. So I was wondering if you could talk a little more about uh, how music influenced you and your passion throughout the years and kind of touch on your relationship with uh, Faith Warning. Sure, and I'll, and I'll try to loop in 
uh, Danielle's question here, but yes, that dates back to the to the early 80s, and rumor has it I may have had slightly longer hair than I do now, and <laughs> listened to uh, a lot of hard rock, but um, it was really, uh, as Jeff said, uh, a band called Fate's Warning, who uh, were out of Hartford, Connecticut, and um, they're a uh, founding member and original lead singer is a guy named John Arch, and uh, John, at the time, obviously, you know, we didn't know each other, um, but his writing uh, opened my eyes up a lot to um, just not looking at the status quo uh, on writing. So the writing at, at that time, the particular, the, let's see, the particular disc that I'm referring to, uh, it was actually vinyl back then, right? Um, was it called Awaken the Guardian? It actually came out 30 years ago this year, 1986. <clears throat> and it was a lot of uh, mythological uh, type writings. It was um, things that were not really written about. And done so, again, in a storytelling fashion um, with a lot of emotion and um, quite simply, you know, when, when you're in your teens, you're going through a, a lot of, you know, has, you're growing up, you know, and you're, you're going through, you know, relationship issues or whatever. And <clears throat> I'd find myself turning to, you know, turning to music um, for that and a lot of it. You know, would go back to <clears throat> really looking at, at at the words that uh, John was writing for uh, their actually their first three discs, Night on Brocken, which I think was '83, uh, Spectre Within, which probably I think was '85, and then Awaken the Guardian came out in '86. <clears throat> um, it made me realize that you can also. Uh, use the written word to get your own feelings and struggles and <clears throat> emotions out. It, it, it opened my eyes to how cathartic it can be to write, um, whether it was just writing some thoughts, writing poetry, writing songs. <clears throat> um, and I remember, uh, funny story, but I remember we had to write some piece of poetry and <clears throat> I was in high school and I was going through a particularly crappy time, and I was wrote a story that basically was doc or a piece of poetry or whatever you want to call it that basically documented that particularly crappy time. And I was quite proud of the piece. I thought it, you know, really was well done, and turned it in. And the next day, I'm sitting in, I don't forget, I'm sitting in calculus class, Mr. Buell, and I got called down to the principal's office. And Sounds like you put a few choice words in well, that poem. <laughs> there weren't, weren't any choice words, but it was real, it was raw, it was emotional, it was powerful. Mm -hmm. And when my English teacher read it, her initial reaction was, oh, God, he's going to kill himself. Yeah. You know, it was that reaction. And Teachers didn't understand <clears throat> the metal. Didn't understand it. Um, it, was, it was, you know, it was just raw uh, and emotion um, about relationship things, really. And... I go, you know, I go in there in the guidance counselor's office. My parents were sitting in there like it was a whole, like, 
you know, Don't and I'm like, well, oh, yeah, exactly. So um, as, it, it's kind of funny looking back now. I actually became funny at that point because everyone's like, a dude's afraid of getting a shot. There ain't no way he's going to do anything to himself to inflict pain, you know? Um, so anyway, basically, you know, I had to explain that it was, you know, just, you gave me an assignment, I did it. And, and no, I don't know, I, mean, I kind of probably had a little bit of attitude at that point about it. And was, you know, apparently what you tell me I did it too well. Is that what the problem is here? Because, you know, we're having the intervention. Um, so again, it just, it just showed me that the, the power of, of writing and the written word and what it can have on people, um, whether they don't understand it or whether they may understand it and are experiencing similar things. Um, so some number of years ago, I don't know, gosh, I don't know, four or five years ago, um, I finally decided I wanted to reach out to John Arch, who had, um, you know, he, he left Fate's Warning uh, after Awaken the Guardian in 1986 in that tour and, you know, started a family and, you know, went on and, um, you know, created another career in life uh, for himself. Anyway, and I wanted to, uh, I'd wanted to reach out to him and just say thanks um, for inspiring me through his writing and his words and opening me up to, uh, again, another level of uh, the power of storytelling and, you know, word selection and how you put them together um, when less can be more and you don't always, you know, you know, you don't, it doesn't need to take you, you know, 5,000 words to clear your throat. You know, yeah. you can just write something short, compact, tight, yeah. powerful. And um, so anyway, I sat about trying to locate him, thought I found his address and wrote him a letter and just said, I know you don't know me, but I just want to tell you, you know, I know it's been at that point, whatever it was, 25 years or so since um, he had written that, but what an, an impact it had had on me. And uh, much to my surprise, he wrote back and was just like, dude, thanks for taking the time to find me and to do this and share the story. I have no idea. Um, did, so, it, did it make him nervous? Uh, <laughs> uh, if it did, he didn't express that to me anyway. Um, so we, we corresponded a couple of times, uh, and then one of the letters, he sent an email and his email address and, you know, just like, it's like, you know, you tell me more about yourself. You just seem kind of fascinating. And I hope they meant that in a good way, um, because I, I shared a lot of the same stories there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he puts the lotion on the so when it's cold. There must be a Oh. Okay. Uh Jason, kinda like you not knowing bad company plan. Silence of the Lambs, that was a movie. Came out I had. Okay. I get it. Okay. Um anyway, so John and I sort of developed a little relationship um, through music, and uh, they have actually, <clears throat> he invited me up last year with Fate Warning, kicked off their 2015 North American tour uh, in their hometown of Hartford, and uh, I went up there and um, had the privilege of uh, staying with John, his family at his place, and um, going and photographing the show. And, um, so was he always with the band? 
Uh, no, John left. Uh, he, left. he left. So, at what yep. point did he join them again? Um, so he actually, <clears throat> I'll try. <laughs> I hope there are some real prog heads out there who will appreciate this story. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of listeners. But um, so John left, went and uh, went into you know business and you know um, just like the you know everyone else does, working a you know nine to five type job and providing support and family through non musical uh, means, and then. Uh, like I said, that was after uh, Waking the Guardian came out in 86, and then um, he put out a little EP, golly, 20 years later, I guess, three song, I think three song EP, two or three songs, um, again, really well written, very personal, um, reflecting on some of his Native American heritage and... Um, you know, just it really resonated because it was again, it was it was raw and it was true and it was real and and very relatable. And then he put together an album called "Sympathetic Resonance" by the band called Arch Matheos, which Arch was a lead singer, Jim Matheos is a guitarist for Fate's Warning, and it was basically Fate's Warning without their current lead singer Ray Alder. So. Um, they put that out and wow i mean the whole i spent a couple of hours talking to john about the writing of sympathetic resonance and it was all about it was all his story it's like i just had to get this out and you know going through and having um uh you know just growing up in uh a family uh that you know wasn't always necessarily the best and um you know, I, I don't want to share too much here. I don't know how much is more just stuff between he and I, but it was a, you know, there were, there were some, he saw some really rough things and, uh, that album was just really him being like, I finally have to get it out. And, um, the, the, the words are just so powerful. Um, and again, there's so many pieces of it that relates, um, certainly to phases I've been through in my life. Um, and just, you know, connects and no pun intended with sympathetic resonance, but it resonated uh, really well with me. So, yeah, so they, so uh, this is the 30th anniversary of their sort of seminal release, you know, their biggest album, uh, Waking the Guardian. And so, and they're, they're huge in Europe. So they went over and kicked off headlining uh, big Prague uh, festivals uh, over in Europe. They went over to Germany and played the Keep It True Festival and just was a phenomenal success. Um, so they're coming back to the States and they have their, they, they'll actually headline, uh, our country's, uh, biggest progressive rock festival in Atlanta in September called Prague Power. And yeah. And, um, you know, I was fortunate enough when I was at their talk for the, uh, 2015 tour, you know, just chatting with him and, you know, tell me this was coming. They're going to be, you know, kicking off the 30th anniversary tour. And, um, you know, we got to talking and, 
you know, one thing led to another, and he's like, you know, why don't you, why don't you just come and shoot the show? And of course, I just about fell out of my chair. You know, here's a guy that you've looked up to, and you know, his his writing has really shaped uh, a lot of your um, abilities, um, thought processes, uh, etc. And um, here he is saying, why don't you come shoot? And now I actually found out last week, um, <clears throat> John was on a uh, a radio show talking about that and they're actually going to be filming the DVD up there and it'll be coming out and uh, you know it's just one of those chance in a lifetime um, opportunities to to um, you know be able not only be able to see the original lineups so all the original guys back together playing you know that entire album in, in its uh, or that album in its entirety as well as a few other um, selections uh, from the John Arch era in Fate Warning so to be able to be there experience that and be able to photograph the show for them and you know, another DVD coming out um, on it as well. It's just, again, yeah, it's a very thought of writing a book. No, did I ever think I'd be doing this? No, but here it is again. And again, it's just about, again, you know, having someone uh, impact you in some way and then, you know, believing in you. And I think that's kind of the, one of the, you know, threads as we're talking through tonight and looking back, it's just, you know, whether it's, a, you know it or not, um, you can be a mentor to somebody, even if you're not aware of it. Right. That's huge. So I, I look at that, and, and Yay and I look at that as one of the big reasons that we wanted to have you on our podcast today, because you, throughout your life, have touched on so many different things that could be a real inspiration and, and maybe give somebody some inspiration or a little kick saying, you know what? Yeah. So if we go to 2014. I think I can remember the back that far. <laughs> and Danielle, if you're still listening, my hair was shorter by then, so yes. <laughs> um, so we had Memorial Day 2014. Um, you were at the St. Augustine National Cemetery. I'm going to try not to get emotional during this part, so you got to bear with me. Sure. Um, the the project that uh, Jeff is alluding to is the the next book that I'm finishing up. That hopefully about uh, later this summer. Um, yeah, looking looking forward to that. Um, but it's called Faces of Freedom, 
and it uh, documents uh, men and women who have served our country uh, from World War II to present day. So, um, a- as Jeff said, it it um, again it started out as just an idea. I had you know we had gone down. Um, my, you know, I should say you know first of all we we're you know I was I was raised in a in a patriotic family. Um, you know, my grandfather had served in, in World War II and, uh, several other family members, um, had served, uh, uh, the nation, not, uh, not during wartime as it was, but, um, you know, uh, you know, career army, army men. And, uh, we would go down and participate even as a kid, uh, in the, in the ceremonies at St. Augustine National Cemetery for, Memorial Day and Veterans Day, and um, so I understand. I understood at an early age, um, as much as you can at that age, what it meant. And you know, as you get older and, and understand uh, more, you know, it, it becomes a lot more emotional for you. And when you actually, you know, are there at the cemetery and. You know, you have a personal connection with someone who was interred there. It was uh, a powerful thing for me that particular Memorial Day, as you said, two years ago. And uh, I was—he uh, was a Marine in the Korean War, um, and he was buried in you know in the 1950s, well before I was born. So, I, as you said, and I'd never met him, and I was sitting there at his headstone, wondering what he looked like. You know, what you know, I didn't—I didn't know anything about him. Um, no, the, um, my other uncle, so his brother, um, was born, uh, much later. So Earl, Earl Green is the, um, is the Marine who's buried there. And uh, his brother is, uh, my uncle Charles and, um, you know, Charles, uh, was a career army, army man. Um, but he was very young, uh, when, all that was happening. Uh, I'm not, I don't actually, I'm not sure if you, to be honest with you, if he was born or if he was a year or two old kind of thing. So, um, he never really knew his brother either. Um, from, uh, just the, the time difference. Um, Earl was born, I think his headstone said in 1935. Um, and I think he's buried in 53 or something like that. So, um, anyway, he, uh, and I, he never knew him. I didn't know him. I didn't know him. And, I remember just sitting there wondering what it was, you know, what what he what he looked like, you know, did he look like my uncle Charles? Did you know? I didn't know. And then and I looked over, as you said, and there's all these people who've gathered there Memorial Day. Um, a lot of the, you know, men there from World War II who are in their 90s, and I asked my I asked myself, I said, man, I don't know what he he you know uncle my uncle Earl looked like. I don't I don't know, I don't know what his story is. And who's going to, you know, tell the stories of all these other guys who are over there who, you know, uh, fought in the you know, World War Two, and, you know, they're, we're losing World War Two veterans at a rate of about 550 a day, um, which is just alarming. And anyway, I decided, well, that needs to be me. So I got myself up from my uncle's headstone and I walked over and randomly picked out four people who were, you know, 
I could tell from one reason or other, either a hat they were wearing or a uniform they had on that, you know, they were, uh, you know, a veteran. And I went up and introduced myself to each one of them and said, I, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to show you. I don't have uh, anything really to tell you other than I want to do a book. And I want to tell the stories of, you know, veterans um, and what, what their experiences were like. And, you know, I want to take your picture and I want it to be like a defining portrait. I know that. And I don't want to, sh uh, you know, I want you to share your story. So I talked to four men that day and, you know, I don't know if I could have picked four more amazing people if you would have given me their background ahead of time. Um, as it turned out, uh, the first person I spoke with um, was a guy named Mario Petruno, and he was a paratrooper who jumped into Normandy on D-Day. Um, also uh, helped liberate Holland as, uh, as part of Operation uh, Garden Market. Um, injured in both of those uh, jumps, um, twice Purple Heart recipient. Um, anyway, he uh, eventually said yes. Um, his wife was very protective of him. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but in sort of the military world, um, he was a celebrity, if you will. Um, his, his actions during World War II were... Um, a character was written into the Band of Brothers about him, and um, so people were always coming after him, wanting something, as it found out. Um, so his his wife initially told me no, and and I she's like, "What do you want? What do you want?" And I I don't really want anything. Um, just I want some time, if that's what you're asking about what I want. Anyway, you know, it all you know they agreed, and everything was ended up being actually better than. You could imagine a great relationship developed out of that. Um, but anyway, he said yes. The second guy I talked to was a guy who was on the USS Oklahoma when it was uh, bombed and torpedoed by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. Um, he lost over a thousand of his shipmates, um, and actually ended up as the as the ship uh, rolled, uh, ended up escaping through a porthole and uh, swimming to safety. And the next guy I talked to. Uh, his name was Dwayne Rails. Um, actually, just saw him this past Memorial Day uh, down there, and we caught up and chatted again. Um, and then I uh, talked to a guy named uh, Ralph Cruz, Major Cruz, and he was in World War II. And as it turned out, um, he had uh, top secret clearance, cryptographic clearance, and nuclear clearance. Um, so uh, we kind of know some of what he was uh, working on, a lot of which he was still not talking about, but there weren't a lot of nuclear projects going on during World War II. Um, anyway, it turns out, and one of the things that he did and, and was able to share and talk about and, and uh, had some great documentation on was, um, he was, for lack of a better word, he was, I was just a very humble guy. He was, I was just a postman, you know, delivering packages. And one of those packages happened to be to uh, a gentleman named uh, General Eisenhower at the uh, uh, Allied headquarters in London. He delivered uh, the maps to for the push into France after the invasion of Normandy. Um, so that was pretty amazing. Um, anyway, so thankfully, you know, they they said yes, um, and then I, you know, went and photographed uh, Mr. Petruno 
on D-Day, <laughs> as it would be, um, you know, uh, many years later. But just went out and, you know, the next, over the next few weeks, pretty much photographed someone every week and started posting a few pictures. And it became a thing where people were reading out, um, um, reaching out, saying, hey, you need to talk to this, you need to talk to that. Um, and then it became more than I could even photograph, more than the book. I've photographed so many people now, and hopefully there'll be a volume two after this comes out. How many, how many for this, for this let's call it the first volume? Uh, so, well, the, the way it's laid out, so um, there'll probably be a, about 30 uh, to 35 um, as it's laying. It, we're doing a little bit of revisions on the layout, um, but one of the things that I wanted to do is, again, there, you know, right there are, I'm not the first guy that's had the idea of writing a book about veterans, you know. So I wanted to find out something that would make this different than every other book that's out there, not to take anything away from that, but, you know, something that's different and unique that could humanize the experience um, that they were talking about. So I wanted to, uh, as I thought about it, I said, you know, if I can take a piece from my museum background experience in golf and bring that into the book, that would be a great way to, again, further humanize that. So as I photographed the individuals and did the interviews, I also photographed something of significance to them from their time in the service. So, uh, for example, um, uh, with Mr. Petruno, uh, he had a, a great deal of things, but he, one of the things he had taken out uh, during our conversation and wanted to show me, but he had his original map from when they were, uh, were jumping into Holland um, to liberate uh, Holland from the Germans. And, you know, he has this original map that he used when he landed, yeah. and he pulls it out and he says, you, 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 you see that right there? And he points to this, you know, what had basically become a uh, black spot at the bottom of the map. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, yes, sir. And he says, well, that's my blood. I got shot in the face when I was looking at the map. <laughs> and it was just, that was kind of things that just hits you that, you know, this, that's, that's what it was like. And so, if, so, if, so in his story, there'll be the portrait, the story, and as you flip the page, and then and the artifact, and basically tying that all together in the piece. So we photogra I photographed, like I said, uh, maps from that. Um, I photographed uh, uh, several prisoners of war. Um, and again, again, things to humanize it. I photographed the gentleman who was on the USS Houston in World War II. Um, it was sunk by the Japanese in the Battle of Sunder Strait, and he was subsequently captured um, and was a prisoner of war. Um, without getting all the detail and the unimaginable horrors and torture he was put through, um, he eventually ended up uh, working on the Death Railroad. Uh, which is made famous by the movie Bridge of River Kwai. So that's where he ended up, quote unquote, working um, in the prison camp. And, you know, the things that that he had were just, uh, I mean, just real treasures, um, time pieces. He had the telegram that the uh, Marine Corps had sent to his parents that basically said, it was a telegram, like a Western Union telegram that said, we regret to inform you that your son, Bill Ingram Jr., uh, is missing in action. We understand this may cause you great anxiety, but we have no further details at this point. Sign, you know, the 
commandant of the Marine Corps, or whatever it was. And I'm, you know, I'm just thinking, man, that's how you get notified. You don't know whether your son's dead or alive. Um, and then as I came to find out later, that was the second one of those they had gotten because his other brother had been captured as well. So they're both POWs. Um, and then anyway, we were sitting there talking and he had this box on the counter or on this desk area. And it just said Death Railroad 1942 to 1945. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, what's in, because he kept saying, I don't, I don't have anything to photograph. I don't have anything to photograph, you know. He's, you're around it every day. It's just stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I asked him what's in the box. And he goes, oh, it's just one of those railroad spikes, you know, from the Death Railroad. And I'm like, it's like actually one of the, the railroad spikes from, you know. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like. That's so everyone out there, right, has has seen or can relate to uh, what a railroad spike is like. So it it can you know it again humanize. You know what that's like. You know what it's got. But here's one that this you know tens of thousands of people died in this prison camp. You know Americans, British, Canadians, Australians. You know even the locals um, there. Um, so to know that you know everyone can visualize a railroad spike. But here's one that represents you know literally tens of thousands of lives and this is you know one of the guys who uh somehow managed to survive and um i could i could write a book on him alone um just an amazing guy so not only were you writing this book and gathering pictures and stuff like that but you also wound up doing a few really amazing things for a couple of these men Right. And due to you contacting a congressman, he wound up receiving what he yeah. been, what he should have received years before. Yeah, you know, it was actually Yeah, it was amazing because um I don't typically go into the shoots for the portrait trying to uh you know, I want you to do this in the picture. I want it to be his sort of moments that unfold, you capture that moment right in the course of the interview process or whatever and for him you know knowing he uh is a pearl harbor survivor and you know i you know i thought you know if there's a way to photograph him you know somehow with the globe or whatever would be kind of cool if he's got it so i'm running through ideas in my head and i'm like you know he probably has you know uh you know world war ii victory medal because everybody got the world war ii victory medal if you you know fought in world war ii so I brought that up when I was talking to him. I said, do you, do you have your, you know, the World War II victory medal? And, you know, he says, no. I said, wait, what do you mean, no? And I've already, I've already checked it out enough and to know, it, like, he really is a Pearl Harbor survivor and checked his documentation, his records, and all this kind of stuff. And, by the way, he also has a, you know, government-issued license plate that says Pearl Harbor survivor on it. So it's, you know, pretty legit. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why do you not have that? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, and you know, it's not like it's some guy, you know, your radar goes off, right, when it's someone claiming to be like some hero, hero and super, you know, I got, you know, I got three medals of honors and I've got this and I've got that. And, and, then, and then you're really skeptical about, you know, um, that story. Um, but here's a guy that was, you know, by no stretch claiming to be a, you know, to be a, a hero. And he just we're just talking about 
the World War II victory medal. And I don't, again, not to minimize that, but basically everybody got that, right? So he, and it was just a uh, moment that I was just like, why don't you have that? And he said, well, you know, I got, you know, I got back, World, World War II ended, got back, got a job and, you know, went back at it. And, you know, I guess so many people were coming back at that time. There was just a, you know, overlap or delay or whatever. And I never got anything. And, you know, I, I tried one time and I think he said in the 1980s to reach out and uh, get some, you know, you know, see what I had earned. And basically you got, you know, told that, you know, the records were destroyed and there's no record of that. Um, what you would have earned. So I was sort of taken aback by that story and um, know there are a number of ways that you can, if you want to put in the time and the research, you can find out um, exactly still what they did from, you know, you can pull, you know, ship logs, find out who was on what, what they did, where they were, uh, verify and validate those types of things. So, um, and I asked, actually asked them to have your, whatever you were, you know, discharged with, do you have those papers and can I see them? And so his wife went up and brought down the safe and pulled out all his, you know, discharge papers and actually a, a, a letter um, when he got out from uh, Admiral Nim Nimitz, um, hand signed by him, uh, which was pretty amazing. Um, but uh, so I, I took that information down and uh, said, you know, gosh, this just isn't right. You know, um, I said, I, do you mind if I make a few phone calls? And they said, no, you know, feel free, you know, I'd, and they certainly had no expectations. Um, I'd only met them a week, met them a week before in a parking lot of a restaurant when I uh, noticed his tag, yeah. um, introduced myself to them what I was doing and they just welcomed me in, um, you know, like I was family. It was, uh, really incredible. And he told, you know, told me an amazing, uh, his amazing perspective of, uh, surviving Pearl Harbor. But anyway, so that was on a Saturday and, uh, the Monday immediately following the first time that our congressman's office was open afterward, I had picked up the phone and called down there and said, Hey, you know, introduce myself. And I'm sure there was a intern or whatever answering the phone. And hey, I, this is coverage from Generations and generations of coverages. Yeah. <laughs> <His> name drop. <laughs> There's a coverage on the line. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've missed something here. <laughs> he's, saying, he's saying you could have name dropped on the intern and then been like, got that information. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. Yes. No. Coverages. I didn't name drop, but um, I did drop a few um, choice phrases. No foul language, but. Um, I made it clear that uh, basically the, the initial response was, well, usually we get these calls and they're old people and they forgot they got them. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you that's not the case and I'm not going to take that for an answer. So you can either, you can either um, connect me to somebody who I can talk to about this or I'll come down and visit them in person. And <laughs> I, I went in the line thing. Um, I show up, they'd never guess I was the same person. Um, and so anyway, she took down my phone number and whatever. And about an hour later, I got a call back from his office. And uh, the gentleman there who's in charge of uh, military affairs 
I explained the situation to him, you know, and he listened uh, to what I had to say. And, um, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to help this happen. You know, here's a guy who's, you know, in his 90s, um, you know, certainly not promised tomorrow. And, you know, he never got what he earned, uh, you know, starting back on that day, December 7th, 8th. And I need your help to make this happen for him. So uh, he said, well, you need to fill out form X, Y, Z, whatever. And so I got the paperwork, went back to the Hewitt's house, um, had them complete it because they had to fill it out and sign it and put all this you know, personal information, which I didn't want to be responsible for on it. And then got it back. Um, and then... Uh, you know, some number of weeks passed and I got a phone call from the congressman's office and said that we, we've tracked down, I think it was seven medals that he had earned, um, and that they were going to do a presentation for him. The congressman was going to come down and personally present him with his medals and ask if I would, you know, like to come to the, uh, presentation and then you know I politely declined and said you know I appreciate that but it's really you know it's not about me it's about you know Mr. Hewitt and him getting the recognition that he deserves and he said okay you know and then I got an email from uh, Mr. Hewitt saying, would you, you know, hey, this is happening. Will you come? And I said, well, I, just, I want it just to make, just to be about you guys. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, at some point I'll come back and, and, you know, I'd love to see the medals and just talk about it or whatever. So I, you know, again, tried to politely decline. Well, then a, a day or two later, I got another call from the congressman's office that said, um, we'd like to request your presence at this medal presentation. I said, well, I'm, you know, again, I wanted to, and they said, well, Mr. Hewitt said, you need to be there for him to come <laughs> because you made it, you know, you know, if it wasn't for, you know, you'd reaching out and, you know, being a voice for him, this wouldn't have happened. Um, start the ball rolling. Um, and by no stretch do I, uh, you know, claim credit for that. Um, I just started the ball rolling and, uh, thankfully, uh, Captain Stapleford at, uh, Congressman DeSantis' office um, was a massive help. Took a lot of work on. Of course, the congressman uh, did as well. And they ended up going above and beyond because uh, they also found, you know, the, the Pearl Harbor Survivors Medal was commissioned by Congress, I think, in 1986, and they gave it to everyone that they could. Well, Mr. Hewitt didn't get one, obviously, and they were out of, you know, they're uh, printed about, I think, the U.S. Mint, and they're out of, uh, out of print. And they went back and. Uh, ended up calling on someone and calling on someone and, you know, basically ended up finding one. I think it was at the Department of Defense. One was in an archive and they got it and brought it, you know, brought it down and was able to present that too. Long story short, they kept looking at uh, stuff and found a number of other medals. So I got an email, you know, some number of months later saying, hey, they invited this back down. Um, you know, there's some more medals that he had earned, um, which was cool. But, you know, being there for the ceremony, I'm really, I'm, I, I'm glad I did in the end go because, um, it was amazing to watch while, you know, we're talking, you know, decades and decades overdue. Um, he finally got it, what he earned in a proper ceremony. And, you know, he'll be, he's, 
uh, in August. Uh, he and his wife will be married 69 years. So the two of them were there. Some of their children, grandchildren, and a great-grandson was there to uh, watch him get that. And I'll tell you, it was, it was, you know, it was amazing because, um, you know, he was there and, you know, he's got his Pearl Spires hat on and dressed, you know, to the T and got his cane and uh, just a very proud, proud moment. And his great-grandson walked through the door and everybody in that office lost it. You know, it was, it was amazing. So as at that point, I went home that, that night and I remember telling several people, um, I said, if not a single copy of this book gets bought, it's already a success because of what happened that day. And he got, you know, he got the medals that he deserved and that he earned, you know, so many years ago. So that again to me when people say how do you know when your book will be success and I, I I like to say it already is and it's not even out yet but it's not about that it's not about me it's not about selling the copies it's not about it's preserving the stories preserving the legacies making sure the next generation understands um, what has taken place and if it takes a powerful picture to grab your attention to get you into that book and it's written so that it's not it's not written for the military audience and it's not written for the civilian audience, but it's written for the human population. Mm -hmm. um, so there's things in there that everyone can relate to, understand and gravitate toward. Um, so I, you know, I intentionally wrote it with it. It's not full of, you know, military jargon and all this kind of stuff. It's going to, it's going to be very relatable. And then again, the, the tangible artifacts um, as well are things that everyone can sort of understand at least. Um, but. It is. It's. I mean, that is. What, what is it? It's telling. It's telling human stories. And um, you know, when you when you think about the people who um, I've had the privilege to meet and talk to, you know, particularly from World War II. I mean, they, what they did, you know, literally changed the course of history for the better. And it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a sad day when we lose, you know, the last of our World War II veterans, and. Again, there was the whole impetus behind why you know, I, I feel so strongly about needing to do this and getting it done and documenting as much as we can um, before it's too late. Well, to piggyback off what you were saying, uh, we had Keith on Facebook Live. He said, thank you for honoring this humble World War II hero. Uh, they saved the world, and we owe them our respect and gratitude. Um, Heather said... Such a great story of what Mark did for this veteran. Proud my dad was able to help. That's Heather Stapleford. Yep. Uh, can't wait for the book to come out. Haven't anticipated a book release like this since Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Woo. So, Yikes. Uh, so we look forward to the book coming out later this summer. Uh, for anybody on Facebook Live or listening to this podcast, Beauty in the Beast Mode on SoundCloud.com. Uh, check out the Faces of Freedom Facebook page Faces of Freedom Facebook page on Facebook uh, and look for it in a couple of months is there a website as well that they can go to besides Facebook? Um, there will be um, not yet okay. um, so um, kind of Facebook is where I'm driving them and yep it, when it when it does, I'll announce on there the page and how they can get the book through the publisher and that kind of stuff. So, and there's a couple of book signings set here in uh, Jacksonville and and San Diego, I think, um, 
so there'll be a couple opportunities to come get a book and make it worth less after I sign it. I think it's about that time. Um, so, Mark, first of all, like you coming here today, we talked about when we first asked you. You said, "Well, what am I going to talk about? Like, what what is what is important uh, about my story um, that?" that people would want to listen to. And you've touched on, there have been just so many inspirational stories throughout this entire time, from, from the golf, to the music, to the writing, to the photography, to this book, and the amount of stories that are in this book, and how important this book is. Like, we, 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 we knew about this book, and we said, we got to get Mark on because we felt that this was so important. But all the other stories that you shared, those are stories in themselves that could be written in an entirely different book. And, and like, had, like, meaningful impact behind those stories. So we appreciate the time that you've taken to come out here and sit down with us and share uh, that information and, and, and just kind of be open and honest about, uh, about your personal journey. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And hopefully, if you take anything away, it's that, you know, you never know uh, when you can be a mentor to someone, when you can impact uh, their life, when you can change their life uh, for the better. Just remember that you could be that, that pebble going in and sending out ripples everywhere and you'll change people's lives. You'll never know. Yeah. I feel like he's listening he listens to the podcast. Like he's listening to because he jumped right into the takeaways without us even saying, what are the takeaways? That's amazing, Mark. But you know what time it is, Jeff? As you passed me the mic because you felt like it was a certain I time. think it's uh It is time for your beast mode, mode moment. Mark, I feel like this beast mode moment pertains specifically to you. Um, obviously we all heard of the passing Muhammad Ali and this is one of his quotes and again I feel this relates to you and everything that we've heard about you today. It says I am an ordinary man who worked hard to develop the talent I was given. I believed in myself, and I believed in the goodness of others. So with everything that you've discussed here, and leading into this book, and sharing these stories, and how important it is, and believing that these are stories that need to be told, and need to be heard, and that there's, there's, this, this book is goodness, and I can't wait for it to come out. And uh, I want my signed copy, regardless of how much it's going to be worth after you sign it. So, <laughs> with that, that was your beast mode moment. What are you, you it to just me? said trying to reconnect, so I just wanted to let you know. It's, we're, we're still here on Facebook. It's Live. back on now, okay. Jeff, now I've given you a little bit of time because in the past couple episodes, you've been like, hold on, let me get this set up. Because you get mad at me when I'm not ready. Ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for Jeff's joint. Because we don't have a soundboard or anything like that. So we make our own sound effects here. Jeff, you ready? I'm ready, baby. So this is... <laughs> Can I have a little chat with our audience here? This one, I wonder if they can hear this on Facebook Live, but... Uh, I'm a huge fan of this song and there are a couple of parts that uh, 
actually touched my heart when thinking about uh, Mr. Covenge today. So take a listen. Very appropriate. So I'm happy that Mark agrees that it's appropriate. Why, why did that touch you? It's people, places, some dead, some alive. It's moments. It's people. Um, you got to cherish them while they're here. Um, respect them. Take the time to get to know them. You know, life, even, life passes by way too fast, and you got to take the time to slow down, you know, get to know them, get to love them, tell them you love them before it's too late. shoulder to cry on or an ear to listen you're always there for them without even blinking an eye so and you are genuinely a humble man so i want to thank you thank you for being so open and honest with us today i appreciate it jeff that means a lot to me appreciate you brother thank you love you love you brother well that's been episode 12 12 12 of beauty in the beast mode podcast and facebook live uno dos what is, what, what was that? That's Italian for 12. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to Roger Stahlbach. That's his jersey number. That's what I thought. On SoundCloud, look for the episode. For Mark Cubbage, I am Yay Martinez. I am Big Jeff. Be kind to one another. Until next time, peace. See ya. <laughs>